Welcome to What's the Buzz Without a Podcast. This podcast is for beekeepers from Atlantic Canada who want relevant, timely information about beekeeping in the region. We feature beekeepers and experts with specialist insights into our beekeeping and pollination industry. My guest today, Dr. Andoni Melithopoulos, is well known to beekeepers in Eastern Canada from his time spent in Nova Scotia as both a student and a teacher of beekeeping. He completed his PhD at Dalhousie University's agricultural campus in 2016. From this, he went on to work as a postgraduate research fellow in pollination ecology at the University of Calgary in Alberta. After his successful postdoctoral work, Andoni landed a position at Oregon State University, where he is an assistant professor of pollination health extension. Hello, Andoni. Thank you for joining us and welcome to What's Buzz Without a Beekeeping Podcast. I'm so excited to be here back in Nova Scotia. And most of the people that will listen to this will, will recognize you and your name and know that you've spent considerable time here in Nova Scotia. And our hope is that you'll get back sometime soon to, oh, uh, that'd be great. to visit us. So we'll, <laughs> you and I can work on that behind the scenes and we'll see what gets you here for a meeting or something. Uh, to, to speak face-to-face -face with beekeepers once we get back to uh, whatever normal is going to look like. But having spent a lot of time here, and you know a lot of the beekeepers here, you're, you are familiar with them and, and they are with you, but maybe with this interview, we can take a step back and you can inform us how you came to be so interested and such an expert in, in beekeeping. Oh, it goes way back. I went to Simon Fraser U University in the 1990s, and I took uh, Mark Winston, who's a he's now retired uh, bee biologist. When he wrote um, Biology of the Honeybee, and I he he taught his last class in uh, Biology of Honeybees, and I remember going to that class, and he asked if anybody had seen a bee colony before, and I raised my hand immediately, and I said I had. And he said, where did you see? I said, on the way up to campus. And he said, oh no, that's a weather station. So I started off in the nineties with virtually no information about beekeeping. And, um, but I've been in it since the 1990s and that lab was great. In the lab was Danielle Downey, who's uh, now the director of Project APSM. Jeff Pettis, who went on to become the research leader at USDA. Uh, Tani Pankew, Heather Higo, who many people in British Columbia know. She's a... A Fred Rathjay award winner from the CHC. So it was a real super lab. So in that environment, uh, I got stuck on bees and uh, I worked on queen mandibular pheromone for an honors thesis. And then I worked on honeybee mites and diseases for my master's. Okay, so I can see why in that environment you got enthused about, about honeybees. Oh yeah, well, and the next thing, I, the next great fortune I had was I then got a job at the Honeybee Lab, the National Honeybee Lab as a technician in Beaver Lodge, Alberta. And I worked first under Don Nelson, wonderful years working under Don. Don had been a real a leader in uh, apiculture research in Canada. And when he retired, I became Steve Purnell's technician and another big giant in uh, 
Canadian apiculture had the good fortune of working with. But after that, I worked there for a while and decided in my 40s, I wanted to do bigger things. And so I did my PhD in Nova Scotia at Dalhousie, and that's where I got to meet all of you. It was a wonderful experience being in Nova Scotia. I, you know, one of the things I really loved was at the time, there was a big uh, push to increase the number of colonies and beekeepers in Nova Scotia. And Tracy Kittleson in Turo set up this modern beekeeping program. Me and Tony Phillips were part of it, and we were able to meet and um, help a number of beginner beekeepers uh, get started. And it's really wonderful to you know, follow many of the beekeepers in that course, and a number of them have created successful beekeeping businesses, which is just a delight to me to look back and follow people. And of course, I was lucky enough to be in that uh, when I was moving back to Canada after being away for around 20 years, I knew that I needed to come to grips with this overwintering in Canada, which is very different from, <laughs> from what I had experienced. So I, I thought, well, I'm going to do whatever beekeeping training is available in that region. And, and I was really lucky to um, have you and Tony um, uh, with Tracy managing that, that course in the early days. And, and I still say that, and, I, and you know, I don't say it too loudly, but here I am on, on the podcast saying it, you know, the, the blend of, of backgrounds and, and knowledge with you and Tony, I think is just about perfect for that kind of course, because of course, Tony, everyone in, in this region knows Tony. <laughs> for his beekeeping and other things but you know he, he's got such breadth of practical knowledge of beekeeping and so Great. generous too and yeah so generous with his time and you were the same but again a little bit more maybe focused on the academic side so I thought those mm -hmm. two things came together perfectly for that course which I think was fully subscribed with 35 students so that was it was a great environment to learn about for me beekeeping generally but specific over overwintering here in, in eastern Canada which is well, which is our biggest challenge. It seemed like a great moment because shortly after that the tech transfer team got off the ground and it seemed like beekeeping in Nova Scotia never was the same that was a real transition point for the industry and it and you know it came I remember at the time the discussions were about getting enough colonies, strong colonies for blueberry pollination. This was the major push at the time. And, you know, I guess it's, it's a remarkable crop. It requires a lot of pollination. And here in the United States, of course, there's a lot of extra colonies after almond pollination. So there's always lots and lots of colonies hunting for a pollination market for blueberries. But in Nova Scotia and PEI and New Brunswick and Quebec, obviously, this is a little more difficult because, you know, this is the primary pollination colonies are just starting to build up and, you know, getting through winter with a strong colony able to, you know, do pollination. It's a tight turnaround in Canada in a way that you know, I think Americans here, in, you know, I'm in Oregon now at Oregon State University after being in Nova Scotia, I got a, I went to Lethbridge, Alberta, worked with Shelley Hoover for my postdoc. And then I got a job here at Oregon State University as the, as the pollinator health extension specialist. And, you know, here I'm in a much different situation in terms of pollination than you are in Nova Scotia. Yeah, maybe we can just step back a little bit, Andoni, and, and talk about some of the research you did while you were here. And then maybe you could uh, oh, sure. explain some of the, uh, the other projects you've been involved with. Yeah, the, the work there, Chris Cutler was my major supervisor. 
And Chris and I were really interested in the question of, you know, at the time, there was a lot of work valuing the value of pollination services. And people would say, you know, it's billions of dollars. But it was a weird kind of calculation because it assumed for something like blueberry, 100% of the value of blueberry is pollination. So you take the entire value of the crop and you just say that's the value of pollination. And clearly, to have a good crop, a lot of things have to happen. And so the research that we did, we looked at, we did some small trials where we would either apply fungicides or not apply fungicides and insecticides to small plots. And then we would have lots of bees saturated with bees and we restricted the bees. And in those small plot trials, it seemed very clear that if you, if you didn't have good fungus control, you'd lose a lot of that pollination. Then we did, uh, I did a lot of the work with Steve Javerick out in Kenville. We did a large study in Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island. We had a number of growers participate. And we had these transects where we would monitor diseases, weed pressure, all of those things, and the bee visitation and looking at the interaction between the two. And I remember, uh, you know, going back a ways, you know, there was, you have high weed pressure, the year before, you're not going to have a lot of bud set and you don't have a lot of bud set, then you're not going to, you know, you could bring in any bees you want, but unless the weed control was done well the year before, you're going to have a problem, stands to reason. And the second thing was, if you don't do good, you know, botrytis control, you don't get the timing right, uh, and mon monolinea primarily, going back a ways. I mean, you bring the bees in, and you're going to lose that value, you're going to have a fruit set, and then the fruit's going to shrivel up and turn into a mummy and you've lost that value. So clearly it seemed to us, those two things need to go together. And, you know, one, you can't pit, you know, pest control, disease control, weed management against pollination. They're an integrated package that has to be thought of that way. That's an interesting message. It really is because we talk about the inputs into blueberry fields. So it's, it's the combined inputs of everything that, that makes for a successful crop. And then on top of that, you have that year's weather conditions and, and any frost events, oh. that sort of thing. Uh, and I guess, you know, we were, we were talking a little bit before the interview. I remember snow happening during, you know, early bloom, you know, never happened in Oregon. <laughs> no, no. Well, I, I'm really lucky. We've got a great staff with the tech transfer team now, but the two people I'm working directly with are not from here and they are, they're astounded almost daily with the weather and the weather patterns and the range of, of weather that we get here. And, and in one day, you know, you can have such a swing in the, in the weather. So yeah, that's certainly a factor for the honeybees and for, for the, the blueberry crop. So that sounds like some great work yeah. you were doing when you were here at Dalhousie. You know, the one thing I was going to add, the thing that I always was amazed, it's colder crop, but it's so low to the ground. I remember Richard, what's his name up in in Montague, was he Montague? But he would do leaf cutting bees. And leaf cutting bees and high bush blueberry where I work don't work. It's just too cold. But having something so low to the ground on those warm days, it seemed to work. Like I remember we had leaf cutting bees and they really were out. I mean, it's a hard bee to manage because you have to incubate them and get the timing right. And he was the only one that I knew who was really doing it on any kind of scale. But it, it seemed to work because that crop was so low to the ground, you get a warm day. And right on the ground, they seem to work there. So anyways, that Nova Scotia memories. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So then from that point, you went on to do a postdoc. Yeah, I, I was really lucky. I got to do my postdoc with Shelly Hoover. 
and Ralph Carter. And Shelly is hands down one of the best apiculture researchers I've ever worked with. She is so practical and she works in that hybrid canola system. And so we worked on problems associated with hybrid canola pollination and really trying to get at, um, you know, is there value in the canola crop, the, not the hybrid crop, but the oilseed crop of having bees in there? Because it seems like beekeepers in the Alberta, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan make, you know, a honey crop off it. But is there any benefit to the grower of having colonies in there? And so we worked on that in a number of fields. And the thing that we found, we had cages where we would exclude wind, where we would exclude bees, and it really, the value uh, was low. There is not a lot of value coming back. You really have to take the stocking rate of bees up quite a bit before you see those benefits. And in some cultivars, you don't see any benefits at all. And so there's another, it was an important crop for just this bigger problem. What's the value of of honeybees to crop yields, because oftentimes those national valuations will have things like soybean or canola in the valuation, especially in the EU states, they'll put rapeseed into the calculations and suddenly the value balloons. But really just realize that value, you'd have to have, you have to triple the size of the beekeeping industry and move them all onto rapeseed and canola to see that value. So the value never was realized. And so that was a good finding for us in terms of this broader question of how do you value pollination services. Yes, and uh, I, I, I think that's a great question and there's lots of work to be done around it. Um, and with that in mind, you've now, you then went on to Oregon State University and you uh, started uh, working within another research environment. Maybe um, you can give us some background on that. Well, it's funny because I feel like I'm in Perennia now because I am an extension agent. In Canada, I'd never run into an extension agent, except when I was in Nova Scotia talking to people from Perennia, where you have a kind of, it's not a government agency, and they're there to help growers. And that's really what the extension service is. And I really love the U.S. extension service. It's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful resource to everybody. But I was a weird kind of hire. So there has always been apiculture extension in the United States. Some real giants of apiculture extension, you know, come to mind. Uh, Eric Musson, for example, or Jerry Hayes, you know, real giants in apiculture extension. But my position was created because there was a bumblebee kill at a parking lot because of a misapplication of an insecticide. And so my primary focus was not honeybees, but pollinator health. I think I was the first position like this in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so my, you know, I primarily work with, you know, uh, you know, pesticide applicators, I train thousands and thousands of pesticide applicators each year on how to read the label, how to do how to do mitigation for how to reduce the possibility of exposure. That's the primary part of my job. But I also have a small well, it started off as a small research project, but, but uh, component, but it's grown. I have a huge component that is uh, the nation's largest native bee survey. So I have, uh, I've hired on a taxonomist, Lincoln Best, who many of you might know. He uh, worked in Ontario. Uh, he's worked in BC. I recruited him down here and we have thousands of volunteers. Well, we have hundreds of volunteers that go around the States and they find lots of native bee records and we're trying to kind of come up with a range map for each of the species in the state. 
has nothing to do with beekeeping and pollination. It's kind of weird because I'm an apiculture person and suddenly I find myself in a native bee position. And I have to say that it has Nova Scotia origins because it was Steve Javrick. Many of the skills that I learned around native bees came directly from the Kentville lab. Okay. He's a real, I don't know if people realize how, you know, impressive the work they do because they, you know, it's Ag Canada. Their work doesn't really get published much, but they've always been on the leading edge of everything you see happening in the world, but nobody ever knows about it because, you know, they're very practical. They work, you know, closely with Wyman's, you know, they have a very kind of uh, tight relationship with industry. And so it was great. So I took all those skills and, you know, adapted them here to Oregon. But I also have been in, still interested in pollination and I've been working with the Oregon Blueberry uh, Commission uh, um, on a number of problems. And one problem that they were interested in, you know, colonies are coming in, they're doing pollination and sometimes they get good fruit set, sometimes they don't. And clearly, as you mentioned, Andrew, some of it has to do with environmental conditions and this, that, and the other, but they really wondered is some of that variation being driven by stocking rate or the number of colonies per acre? And I had a colleague, um, I still have a colleague, Lisa DeVetter, she's at the Mount Vernon, um, Washington State University um, Small Berry Center. And she had already done work showing that on some of the high bush blueberry cultivars, if you took the stocking rate up, you could increase yields. And, you know, the, um, here, I think, I can't remember what we've got, it's sort of um, the standard stocking rate, she could double and triple it, she could get higher yields. But there was still this question, and it didn't seem very well resolved, of what if somebody didn't bring in more colonies, but they just brought in stronger colonies. And to that end, I had a very smart um, undergraduate researcher Kennedy Grant, and she, I told her this is a great opportunity, we should do a project around this. And so she did her honors thesis, where we went to, uh, for two years to commercial blueberry growers in Oregon. And we would, uh, we worked with a crop consulting company like uh, Perennia, it's called Pure Bolt Crop Consultants. We went out and assessed the colonies. And so we would assess the colonies multiple different ways. And then um, they would go through and run walk transects, look at bee visitation, fruit set and uh, fruit size, and, and then they would calculate yield. And then we want, we asked the question, is it true that if beekeepers bring in stronger colonies, would they have um, more yield? And we had a secondary question. Beekeepers were always concerned about increasing stocking rate because they thought it might lead to the transmission of a disease that we have a big problem with here, European fowl brood. And so we tracked European fowl brood rates in the crop just to sort of like see what the baseline was. Interesting. Um, European fowl brood is uh, an issue here, as you know, ah. becoming more so. Yeah. Um, and with different strains. I mean, we have what we're calling politely, although there are other terms applied to it, atypical EFB. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it is a problem. And, and you know, there's a, there's a link um, to the stress of pollination and European fowl brood, which is not surprising because any animal that you um, put under stress 
there are opportunistic pathogens which will then attack or you know the the get to the point where we see seeing clinical symptoms i guess um so um it's it's on our minds here in eastern canada and certainly we're trying to do a little bit of work around it and i'm really interested to hear that in high bush blueberries because i think when we talk now we have to make that distinction because you've you've gone over to the dark side of the blueberry world with the, <laughs> with the high bush well blueberry. i don't think anybody in in oregon is going to hear this but i mean nova scotia blueberries are the best blueberries on the planet i mean it's just these big, huge berries we grow out here, they're big, but they don't, they're not no, like a, a they don't pack the blueberry. No. Yeah, I know. And I, whenever I talk to someone that, you know, outside our area, they, they do just use the term blueberry. And I, I always, as politely as I can, you mean high bush blueberries. <laughs> they go, oh, yes, of course, of course. It's like, no, we have to make that clear distinction. But um, nonetheless, it, it is interesting that the same the same thing seems to be happening in the high bush industry as it is in the low bush industry that we're we're worried about the uh, the EFB situation. Yeah, it was, and we 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 had one year where it was terrible. The second year it wasn't so bad. And the thing is, the thing that we really need to do because it seems as though it it corresponds with it. And we sent some samples off to the University of Saskatchewan, like you did, to Sarah Wood's lab, and she also detected atypical strains of EFB. And I remember talking to Randy Oliver about this. Many of your listeners may know Randy. And I you know, was at a talk. I was saying, we've seen this spike. He said, oh, we saw this in California. Went went through and we never saw it again. And I don't know if this is the case, but it really does seem to hammer our beekeepers hard. And it makes them reluctant to go into blueberry because of a, a, perceived, a perceived cause and effect. And it certainly seemed we we can't say anything about cause and effect. It certainly does. They come in with no EFB and they leave with a lot of it. And that was just, you know, it, it, it even in the year that it wasn't so bad, it's still it, that pattern happens. We don't see that with the other brood diseases. So we track the other brood diseases. And of course, they go up and down, but they didn't seem to have nearly the spike of increase that we saw with the other diseases what really needs to be done. And for us, we're fortunate here because, and you have a little bit of it there. There is an option, I guess, of doing apple, uh, you know, not do it would, but here where we have bees that go to cherry about the same time, and it would be nice to just track the colonies going into cherry and track the colonies going to blueberries. And cause it's about the same geographically similar area. And, um, and just see if there's a, if, if it is truly blueberry, I mean that's a big question. Yeah, it, it and and the same here. You know, the, there's a strong suggestion that the nutritive stress of being placed in, in our case, the wild blueberry um, fields where there's this monocrop, great stretches of hundreds of acres of berries and nothing else. But we've done a little bit of work to look at what's coming back for pollen because um, oh, I've seen that it's great work you guys have been doing yeah, good. and and there's a good there's a good breadth of of plant species available seemingly um the quantity we haven't looked at but the the nutritive stress in high bush blueberries would be different I would think um yet we're still seeing the same phenomenon it goes back to an old uh, theory well paper Gordy Wardell before he became a famous you know, almond, you know, consultant, uh, did his work at Michigan State University. And he showed 
an association between the um what was it the alkalinity of blueberry pollination of blueberry pollen and efb and he had these little gut experiments where he showed that you know um the efb did better in an alkaline gut and um the thing about it and so that's where he came up with i can't remember his pollen supplement but it's acidified Right. So the idea is if you acidified the pollen supplement, but I know, you know, Heather Higo and Marta Guarna out in, uh, with Ag Canada and UBC had done work in high bush blueberry in the lower mainland with pollen supplements during, uh, and I think you probably have done this, but you don't see a difference. You still see the disease come on. Pollen supplements don't seem to have any impact about this. So I think the, the cause and the where it's coming from is a little puzzling still. It is, it is. Yeah, we, we've done a fair bit of work around supplementing with pollen and, and um, there's still a question mark over whether or not economically it's, it's worth doing. For the one thing I will mention is the pro work I'll talk about right now um, was uh, helped, um, it was a small part of helping a larger project being led by Rufus Isaac. It's a new, it's a pollination planner project um, and him and Rachel Mallinger in Florida, Lisa DeVetter and myself, uh, Lisa and WSU have started. And it has multiple components. The idea is that we'd have a planning device for, you know, cultivar, you know, temperature, all of these things would go into a model and, you know, a blueberry grower could figure out, oh, I need to stock a little bit heavier or something. And the one thing that we have been doing the last couple of years we noticed that some of our blueberry growers will um, find a nice landing and put all the colonies and set them back from the crop. And some will put a, a pallet every row, like they really disperse them and they put them right up against the crop. And we have bands on those colonies to track pesticide levels come hitting the colonies. So there's been a concern with beekeepers that if they're really close to the crop, that what happens is that the is that the, you know, invariably, you're, you're not going to turn the boom off and miss that last bit of, you're just going to get the spray on the colony and that might be contributing to some of these problems. And that research is ongoing. So, we, but we've seen a lot of variation. I've seen growers who, and the question for the growers, of course, is they think, well, if I disperse them, I'll get better, I'll get better fruit set. And so we're looking at that as well. Like if they're put in a nice landing away from spray drift in a clump, do you get the same fruit set and yield that, and if you sort of space them all out within the crop so that they're sort of vulnerable to spray drift and that research is ongoing and I'm excited to see that. But again, there's been lots of work about EFB and, you know, pesticides and it's, there's something missing. We don't quite understand the link here and I don't think it's pesticides alone. It might be a bit. And I don't think it's the, the, the crop itself, although that might be a bit, there's something else in this picture that we don't have resolved. I'm glad to hear you say that because I feel the same. Um, that it, there, there is, there is a, something that we're not quite seeing. Um, and uh, it, it may be that it's a combination of stressors that mm -hmm. trigger it, you know, the transport, the, the, the you know, relocation and the transport and the, the nutrition piece of the puzzle. But yeah, it, it intuitively, when you start to explore this, you get to that point. There is something more here. So um, 
I, we'll get to the bottom of it, I'm sure. <laughs> we will. Um, and it's reassuring that there's other people trying to explore the same, the same uh, research questions. Um, so um, what's, uh, what's next? For well, in regards to blueberries, like well, we're going to keep working on this problem, huge number of colonies going into almonds. Then after almonds, there's a huge number of colonies looking for somewhere to go. That depresses pollination prices elsewhere. So in blueberry, growers are paying 55, 60 bucks a colony for pollination. And, and what we were interested in is maybe there's a, a way in which those colonies may be coming in at varying strength. And there's no incentive for a beekeeper that does everything right, comes out of almonds, splits them, gets them right to strength, they're getting the same price as somebody who might just be like picking stuff up in almonds, dumping them off in blueberries, not really doing any work. And that didn't seem right. There seemed to be perhaps some value in those beekeepers that are going the extra mile. They're not getting the incentive for. So what we did in this study is we looked, the Kennedy did, we looked at various, you know, the variation in strength in those, um, in those blueberry fields. And we tried to see if there was a relationship between strength and yield. And in fact, there was, it was quite a, quite a strong relationship uh, between the two. And, you know, there might, growers might lose up to 60% of their value from stocking the same stocking rate with smaller, with smaller colonies. And so it seems to me there's something there. And clearly that presents challenges for beekeepers. A beekeeper goes into a blueberry field with colonies booming it's going to have a swarm management problem there's all sorts of there's got to be some kind of way of coming in with a reasonably sized colony with the grower knowing you're going to have to split out of those and take the pressure off and you know but in doing all of those good steps you should be able to get 70 dollars or 80 dollars for those colonies because you know clearly you know bringing something in that isn't well managed you're going to get less value and the one thing that we did work on, and we talked a little bit about this, Andrew, um, before we started, is we wanted the growers, knowing that it was a cheap pollination, they may not be able to hire a consultant to go in and do what they do in California, where somebody comes by and they grade the colony, contracts are signed the year before, and if you get a bonus, you're, you, know, you get paid extra, um, that we'd give the growers, we had this um, rule of thumb uh, guide here in Oregon about number of bees returning per minute. And in the old days, it said 100 bees per minute returning, you know, at a temperature above 16 centigrade, you know, um, at that you would be able to predict the colony, that would be a minimum grade colony. And we went through and we looked at this. And in fact, there is a, a, a relationship between it. It, it. It's temperature dependent. So if you're down at 10 degrees, clearly nobody's gonna be flying. But you get above 16, all the way up into the, you know, up to 30, there's a pretty stable relationship where the number of bees returning um, predicts the colony strength. And we thought we could show growers videos of these different colony strengths, and at least they can maybe pull out the real strong ones. They have a sense that their beekeeper is really delivering strong colonies, and that that would be an opening for a conversation between the beekeeper and the grower to get a little bit more money for them, because they're clearly giving the value and it's much more than $55 a colony value that they're delivering. And we wanted to bring that to the attention of the growers.
Mm, interesting. Uh, the, so many things there we, we could explore, but uh, I, I agree that uh, there has to be an optimal hive strength. Um, and it isn't as many bees as you can get into a box before you take them to pollination. Oh, no, they'll be all gone. <laughs> they will. And, and I, I think there's a growing understanding, certainly with the beekeepers, but also the, the fruit producers, that that swarm that leaves is a pollination unit that no one has access to. And it's lost for the remainder of that pollination season, but the, the, probably the next as well. So it's, it's interesting to, to explore this. We have some standards now that we use as a kind of a minimum, what we'd like to see. But I, I feel the same, that there is an optimal hive strength, um, that this is what a hive should look like when it drops onto a blueberry field. Um, and it's not going to swarm yet. You're going to get the maximum, the maximum uh, most effective pollination out of it. Um, you know, I, I have a mentor here in Oregon, a beekeeper at a Salem called Harry Vanderpool. And he says, we really have to build bridges across the grower and beekeeper community. And it may be in fact, that the growers get more value out of a strong colony and it swarms midway and they actually got most of the pollination out of it. But it's going to come at the beekeepers expense. They got uh, units that have come offline, they're not ready for making honey, it just hurts them. Some point, there's got to be a dialogue between the industry and the beekeepers and say, listen, we could come in really, really strong, but we're going to, it's going to cost us dearly. And, you know, and we understand that you need to get some fungicide sprays on and we under, you know, you're doing the best you can. There's got to be give and take in this system, but you can't be, you know, rock bottom prices for the beekeepers and expect them to be able to reinvest and bring better colonies in the future and their equipment's up to date. You can't, it won't, there's got to be, you know, a partnership here because you can't do the two. You need both to make it happen. And everybody's got to be more or less honest about what their expenses and costs and all those things are to make this work, especially up there in Nova Scotia, you guys are stuck. You've got a beekeeping industry. You can't bring colonies in, you know, there are other bees, but they're not going to be as cheap and as manageable as honeybees. You, you got to work with the industry. And I guess that's my, you know, when I was in Atlantic Canada, I was always impressed with the level of cooperation between beekeepers and growers. It seems, it seems like you guys have everything dialed in quite well out there. Yes, I would agree. I would agree. There's, there is good communication and sharing of, of uh, knowledge and experience, which, which helps with that as well. Um, it, you're, you're tremendously busy, Andoni, and we can see that in just our, our brief conversation. So I'd like to thank you for the time you've given us today. But before I let you go, I, I, I want to get, and I think it'll be an easy, easy sell commitment from you that you need to, first chance you get, we're gonna arrange for you to get back up here to Eastern Canada and, and tell us face-to-face -face about some of the things that you're working on and doing. I'd love that. And I'd also just love to learn what you guys are doing. I always think the work that's happening in Nova Scotia is kind of, it's kind of the thing of being in Atlantic Canada. You do a lot of good work there, nobody really, knows about it and i always you know i'm delighted to come back to the land of canada because you really are on the cutting edge of a lot of these things and um in some ways i only hear about it when i'm in nova scotia maybe that's just the way it works <laughs> yeah i don't know but we'll make sure you hear about it because we'll, we'll keep in close touch now and um keep each other update on updated on what we're doing so thank you for your time again and we'll hope to speak to you soon keep up the good work 
Your What's the Buzz with Ada Beekeeping podcast is brought to you by your Atlantic Tech Transfer team for ape culture and perennia food and agriculture. We would like to thank Rachel Oxner and Patty Ryan for production and editing, and we would like to thank you, our listeners. For more information on beekeeping in our region, visit our blog, www.atabuzz.com. And find us on Twitter, Atta at Atlantic Bee.